welcome friends to the Sunday Leftovers podcast, a monthly podcast where we dig a bit deeper into the topics that we are covering in our current Sunday morning sermon series. My name is Chris Lenhart, and I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. Sunday Leftovers is a ministry of CNBC located in Paradise, PA. If you're new to the CNBC faith community and would like more information related to our church, please email CNBC at calvarymonument.org. If you're following along with us on Sunday mornings, you know that we're currently mining our way through the book of Exodus. Today's podcast will cover topics from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6. And if you've missed a Sunday morning sermon and would like to catch up, you can access audio versions of our current sermon series on the CNBC app or on our website at www.calvarymonument.org. Whatever you are doing as you are listening today, Our hope is that this podcast will deepen our love for God and His Word and grow our desire to live as fully formed disciples of Jesus, loving, living, and leading for His glory. We hope that this content will help us all grow in a greater love for God and the people that He places in our pathways. Today we'll be jumping around the different sections in the book of Exodus, so it may be helpful to engage this content with the Bible nearby so that you can follow along as we study reflect, learn, and grow together. All right, let's pray and dive right in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its preciousness, for its goodness, for its truth, and for the living nature by which your Holy Spirit uses it to transform us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Guide our time of study today in Jesus' name. Amen. going to begin our time together by looking at the meaning of some of the really important names in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Oftentimes in the Hebrew language, when we see a name, there's a double meaning that goes along with it or something that's attached to the name that tells us something important related to the character. And it's very interesting, as we shared on Sunday morning, how often Exodus goes back into the book of Genesis and pulls forward into its narrative concepts from very early on in the scriptures. Exodus is a story of restoration. It's a story of redemption, of the reformation of a people who had been displaced, and then the renewal of a covenant with people whom God is in relationship with. Very early on in chapter 1, we meet two women. They're Hebrew midwives, and their names are Shipra and Pua. And you remember that one of the things we talked about is that early on in the first few chapters of Exodus, there are seven women who are vital in playing an integral role in the protection and preservation of the lives of the Hebrew Uh, male babies that were being born, the very ones who Pharaoh wanted to have put to death. And so only two of these midwives are named, but what's in their name is very interesting. The name Shipra in Hebrew is the same word that would be used for brightness and beauty. And the name Pua is a name that would have been used for someone or something that was splendid. And so indeed, as as we see these women, as they resist and they rebel against the orders of Pharaoh, they are propped up as these 
bright and shining images of faithfulness and obedience to the command that God gave multiple times in the book of Genesis for his people to be fruitful and multiply. So then as we continue uh, in the first and second chapter, we meet Moses' parents. Now it's interesting that his parents aren't named uh, or their names aren't given till later in the narrative, but we know from reading ahead that Moses' father's name is Amram, which means exalted people. And he is a descendant of Levi and Kohath. And it just turns out that his wife also happens to be his aunt, and her name is Jochebed, and this is Moses' mother. And Jochebed's name means Yahweh is glory. And, and again, uh, very early on in the book, we're finding this contrast between Yahweh, the one true living God, and his power and his glory, and the glory of Pharaoh, which the reader is, is being shown over and over and over again that the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of Yahweh, the name of Yahweh is far greater than that of the Pharaohs. And so we have Moses' mother, Jochebed, a daughter of Levi from the line of Jacob. Now Amram and Jochebed together uh, have Miriam, they have Aaron, and they have Moses. Now they could have had a, have had other children, but these are the ones that, that we're told about in the Exodus narrative. And so we want to move to Miriam's name, and Miriam's name is very interesting. In the Hebrew language, it would have uh, been a word, the same word that was used for rebellion or resistance. And again, it's it's intriguing because early in the first two chapters, we have Pharaoh giving an order, creating a plan, executing a plan in order to have all of the male infants of the Hebrews put to death, thrown into the Nile River. But Miriam is resisting or rebelling against the Pharaoh's plan. And not only is she resisting or rebelling, but she's also plotting her own plan. When she sees her baby brother pulled from the Nile, to have him taken back to Jochebed to be nursed by his own biological mother. And as it turns out, her plan is much more successful than the plan of Pharaoh. Now, later on in the narrative, when she's out in the wilderness with Moses and the people are wondering, of course, she gets a little bit upset with her little brother and she resists his leadership a little bit. And perhaps there's a a double meaning going on there in her name. But overall, in the narrative, she is shown to be one uh, who is uh, worshipful uh, and, and powerful and faithful uh, to the Lord. She is also the first female in the Bible who's identified as a prophet. Now, Moses's older brother, Aaron, he's three years older than Moses. His name means bringer of light. And of course, he ends up being uh, appointed by Moses as a high priest. Uh, and it's another example here in the Old Testament where God chooses the younger in Moses to be the primary deliverer over the older, something that would have been very countercultural in that day and age. And so we have Miriam, we have Aaron, and we have Moses. Now, Moses' name is chock full 
of meaning, uh, Hebrew meaning, but also meaning related to his Egyptian upbringing. And I want to start there with the Egyptian side of his name. When you look at the pharaohs down throughout history, many of their names end with this S-E-S or S-E. Uh, some even have like Ramses, uh, the M involved there. So you have Ramses, you have Thutmose, you have Amenmos, and the ending of that name meant son of or child of. So Moses' name certainly speaks in some way to his Egyptian upbringing. Now, we're uncertain. Did Pharaoh's daughter name Moses or did Jochebed name Moses? Because in Hebrew, his name carries a very heavy connotation towards the role that he'll play in this narrative as well, in that Moses in Hebrew was a name that meant to draw out or drawing out of. And indeed, he was drawn out of the Nile River and he would uh, be used of God to draw the Israelites or the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness. So lots of meaning tied into Moses' name. Moses ends up uh, having to escape from Egypt after he uh, kills one of the Egyptian taskmasters, and he ends up in a place called Midian, where he's going to meet his wife and her family, his future wife and her family. Her father's name is Reuel or Jethro. He's given two names. Uh, perhaps he had a name in the ancient Near East that was much like uh, a name that we would have today, uh, a person that had two first names, like Paul Christopher. He could be Paul or he could be Chris. So the first name that we're given in 2.16 is Reuel, and it means friend of God. But it's the second name that really ends up sticking, and that's Jethro. And the name Jethro means his abundance. And again, in the text, what we find very early on is that Jethro is a man who has abundance. He's in the land of Midian. It appears he has much land. He has many sheep. And he has seven daughters. Seven. And it just so happens that one of his daughters, Zipporah, whose name means little bird, is going to become the wife of Moses. And together, Zipporah and Moses, they have a son, and they name their son Gershom. And Gershon's name is significance largely because in the text, Moses gives it significance, uh, but also because it, it very much means uh, or relates to the situation and circumstance that Moses had found himself in. Gershom's name means a foreigner or alien or stranger there. And indeed, Moses really didn't belong in Midian. He didn't really belong in Egypt, though, either. And Perhaps he didn't even really realize or feel like he belonged with his own people, the Jews. So where did Moses belong? And what is going on in this broader narrative, uh, in the interchange between God and Pharaoh, and between God and Moses and his calling? And for that, we're going to turn to a second section of our text in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, where we're going to explore the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and God's attempt on Moses' life. So we spent a little bit of time in Exodus chapter 3 on Sunday mornings talking about 
God's calling and and how God called Moses and how Moses resisted the calling that God had placed on his life. One of the areas that we couldn't spend a lot of time in just because of the time that we had was on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So I want to look at that again. It actually is in Exodus chapter 4. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at what this means and how this uh, concept is even drawn out into the New Testament in one of Paul's letters. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 21. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you a second to go ahead and turn there. Exodus 4, verse 21. And I am going to be reading uh, all of our references today from the New English Translation, the NET version. So Exodus chapter 4, 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders I have put under your control. But I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. And much has been made over time and over the years, and a lot of articles have been written, a lot of scholarship has been done on what it means for a person to have free will and what it means that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and how those two concepts relate to one another or work together. And if we have a free will, how free really is it if God's able to harden our heart or soften our heart, which he does also? Good questions. Great questions. Questions we will not fully be able to answer in this podcast However, I think what we find as we continue to read the scriptures is that a lot of times in context, the scripture gives greater insight into some of the questions we might have. And so if we just continue reading from Exodus 4 all the way through chapter 9, in chapter 9 verse 16, God actually gives one of his purposes for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So I'm going to read from Exodus 9, verse 16. God says this, But for this purpose, I have caused you to stand, to show you my strength, and so that my name may be declared in all of the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people by not releasing them. So really two purposes there. One, God wanted to show his strength through Pharaoh which absolutely through the plagues, which we'll actually explore in next month's podcast, and the Red Sea crossing and all of the other things that he did, he displayed his strength um, in wondrous and miraculous ways. Uh, But then second, so that his name may be declared in all the earth, so that God, Yahweh, would get the glory and not Pharaoh, not the gods of Egypt. And when then the other nations around Egypt saw that God was powerful, to free his people, not just powerful, but effective to free his people, that it would be God's name that would be glorified. And so there was purpose and intention in what God was doing. Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Roman churches. And it's actually in chapter 9 of that letter, Romans chapter 9. And we enter into kind of a line of reasoning here. So Uh, You may have to go back and do a little bit of extra reading, but I want to read from verses 14 to 18 of chapter 9 in Romans. Paul writing says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? 
Absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may demonstrate my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then, God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. Now, an interesting observation that continued to confront me as I studied this particular portion of Exodus was that God's mercy uh, was long standing, or it was patient with the Pharaoh. There were 10 plagues. There were plenty of opportunities. And yes, God was hardening his heart so that he would be resistant. But if Moses or Pharaoh would have been obedient and responded with obedience, um, and, and even an ounce or an iota of humility, maybe the narrative would have ended uh, or would have changed a bit for him. But that simply didn't happen. Pharaoh continued in his unbelief, his disobedience. In fact, there's times in the text where it tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So, yes, God was doing it, but Pharaoh was doing it as well. So there's a little bit more on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now, Moses himself doesn't have the softest heart when God calls him either. He's very reluctant, even resistant. He doubts his abilities, um, not very confident in what he's been called to do. And so there's this scene in chapter 4, verses 24 to 26, that we just skipped over on Sunday morning. Uh, it was a little too much to cover on that Sunday, and we want to cover it right now here. So 24 to 26. God actually is going to make an attempt on Moses' life. Let's start in verse 24. Moses and his family are on the way to Egypt. Now on the way, at a place where they stopped for the night, the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off the foreskin of her son, and touched it to Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, A bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. So there are some examples throughout the Bible where God called someone and they resisted and you had kind of this back and forth between God and the person who was resistant. One of the clearest examples of this is Jacob in the book of Genesis where he wrestles with the Lord. Another clear example of this is Jonah who ends up in the belly of a whale. But these uh, encounters are all throughout scripture. We might even uh, say that that Peter in the New Testament, one of Jesus' disciples, has this similar kind of experience when he doubts the Lord three times and Jesus has to restore him on the beach. doesn't just restore him, but he also gives him a calling to help him move forward in the establishment of the church. So Moses is wrestling with God's calling. He's indecisive, he's resistant, he's doubting himself, his abilities, 
And in the midst of all that, not being super excited to necessarily go where God had called, he's now disrupting and unsettling his family. I'm sure that Zipporah is feeling that he's not fully convinced or excited about this, and yet she's being asked to uproot her son, her family, to leave her father, her sisters, and to go with Moses. All of that. And their son still has not been circumcised. Whether or not Moses is indifferent to his people, to the Hebrews who he was being sent to, to deliver as God worked through him, or whether he just had forgot, the text doesn't really tell us why he didn't circumcise his son. But this was something that the father was supposed to have done or do himself. This was not something that a mother was to do to her son. So right here in this text, we have this couple's spat. Uh, Zipporah, she's not super excited about having to do this. She cuts off Gershom's foreskin and she throws it at Moses. And and perhaps if we were uh, putting this in the modern day vernacular, she essentially says, you are the worst. I, I can't believe you. It, it, why have I had to do this? And again, when we consider all that Zipporah had to do, cutting off her own son's foreskin and, and having his blood on her hands wasn't something she was super excited about, but she was left no choice as something was going on uh, where God was making an attempt at Moses' life and perhaps even the life of his son. And so Zipporah takes the action that she needs to. And I think it, in this portion, it's a reminder to us that, you know, sometimes God calls us the things that are scary. Oftentimes, almost all the times, the things that he calls us to are out of our control. He's in control. Uh, how do we respond? What's our attitude like when God calls us to something big, to something grand, to something that we can't fully understand, but know uh, that we're supposed to be walking by faith in. And Moses wasn't doing it with joy. He wasn't doing it uh, with great love. Uh, he wasn't doing it with the spirit of patience and humility. How are we walking in what God has called us to? And so thankfully, Moses does not lose his life, uh, nor does his son in this event. He is spared, and he's able to do what God had called him continue to move forward into what God had called him. Now, in our next section, we're going to move into Moses's and Aaron's ancestry, which is found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 14 to 25. And we're going to explore in a little bit of greater depth where or what line Moses and Aaron descended from. We want to read right from the ancestry of Moses and Aaron from the book of Exodus. So chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 14 and just catch up on the line of Moses and Aaron. 6.14 These were the heads of their father's households. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanuk and Polu. Hezron and Carmi, these were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. 
These were the sons or clans of Simeon. Now these were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon by their families were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Moses' father, Itzar, Hebron, and Uziel. The length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jacobin, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Itzar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elazaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, the daughter of Abinadad, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ethamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Alkanah, and Abiasif. These were the Korahite clans. Now Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These were the heads of the father's households of Levi, according to their clans. So this is a pivot point in the Exodus narrative, and it really places Aaron and Moses in line with their people in this particular time and space in history. And this was important, especially for Moses, who, after he was born, and just a short amount of time uh, after he was nursed by his mother, he was given back to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised um, in an Egyptian culture, really ingrained with their culture and their heritage. It was important for the people to see and to understand and to know that Moses was indeed uh, of proper lineage and descent, that he was a Hebrew, that he was from the line of Levi. But it also shows us that there is nothing significant in terms of natural ability or privileges that extended from their birth that merited the selection of Moses or Aaron. They were simply chosen by the grace and mercy of God to do the great thing that he had called them to do. And this is still how God works today. He calls people unto himself, by his grace, by his mercy. And when we come to God through the person of Jesus, we find salvation. And in that salvation, God calls us to wonderful, life-giving things. And when he indwells us with the fruit or with this Holy Spirit, we produce fruit as the Spirit takes effect in and through our lives. And indeed, there was nothing that Aaron or Moses did. They didn't earn their calling. They didn't work for it. In fact, many times Moses was very, very clear he didn't even want it. In one particular instance, he says, can't you just find someone else, God? He wasn't ready. He didn't quite believe. But over time, as God worked on him and had effect in his life, Moses learned to walk by faith. Oh, and he could be an example to all of us 
Thank you so much for joining us in this first episode of Sunday's Leftovers, where we dive a little bit deeper into the current sermon series that we're exploring here at CNBC. I hope you enjoyed this time. I know I enjoyed it. I look forward to seeing you on a Sunday morning or some other time. Have a wonderful day in Jesus. We'll see you next time. Take care.